The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm Margaret Lyons, here with Matt Zoller-Seitz. On this special episode, we have crazy ex-girlfriend star and co-creator Rachel Bloom. We talked to her at length about the show, which premiered on The CW earlier this fall, but we also cover a lot of musical theater nerdery, some uh, weird foodgasm conversations, <laughs> and uh, her ability to coin strange and charming turns of phrase. Rachel, hello. Hi. Hey, Rachel. So now that the sort of first chunk of the first season has aired, how are things feeling? Does it feel like things have settled down? Does it feel like things are ramping up? Where are you on that arc? God, you know, I was just talking to Aline with whom I co-created the show yesterday and she and I are so proud of the show and, and she said point blank to me and I believe that she was like I feel like we just did eight episodes that are as good as like any eight episodes of TV that someone could have done and like I know that sounds like a hyperbolic statement to say about your own show but we worked so hard and everyone in the productions worked so hard I'm really 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 proud of it and so excited that someone's letting us do this show. That was something I wanted to ask you about. How do you make a show like this? Because it's hard enough to make a regular series, but to have a series that includes a regular component of musical numbers that have to be written, rehearsed, performed, choreographed, probably you have to think up what is the concept of this, what shots do we need. That seems like you're basically doing two shows. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in the middle of it, but I was I was watching it the other night and thinking, how in the hell do they do this? It's really hard. I mean, it's, it's an ambitious show to do, like, on the kind of scale and budget that we have. But basically, we had prep time going into the series. So before we went into the series, we had, I would say, the songs up until episode five written. And then we're working on six and seven. There are three main songwriters. It's, it's me, Jack Dolgen, and then most importantly... Our head of music, Adam Schlesinger, who's, I mean, he's an Emmy winner, Grammy winner. He's like a genius. And Adam is full-time working on the music. That's how we've been able to do it. It's still a crunch. Like, right now, we have a table read for episode 13 on Monday, and we're kind of like just finishing up the songs right now. I'm really looking forward to winter break to catch up. But we just have people kind of working overtime, so we somehow get it done. So this is going to be a year-round thing, I'm assuming. Like, this is not where you can just take three months off and chill. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. And we were kind of saved. We had, a like, a backup script order at Showtime, so we're right now we're doing... We're just filming episode 12 right now, which originally, some aspects of it were our original episode 2, and so those songs that we're doing in episode 12 right now actually happen to be written like a year, year and a half ago. So that was really cool to use these two songs that we didn't know if we were going to be able to use in this plot. We didn't know if we were going to be able to use. So, yeah, it's a full time. It's a full time. I don't really have breaks. One of the things people might not know is that Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was not always destined for the CW. Can you talk a little bit about how the show wound up there and, and where the sort of creative process started and where it ended up and, and how that all went down? So when we first created the show, Aline found me. She's an amazing screenwriter, and she found me through these music videos that I've been doing. And when we started thinking of the show, we kind of off the bat knew we wanted it to be like a very, very fucked up, dark, romantic comedy kind of like a deconstruction of stereotypes, um, an exploration of how, like, love ruins us. So that seems like a very dark, cable show. So we pitched the show to only cable places, and Showtime bought it, and we made the pilot with Showtime, and we were super, super proud of it. And then Showtime passed. So then we had this pilot on our hands and two backup scripts and, like, pretty much like a pitch for the whole series. And we sent it around. We peddled our wares kind of everywhere. Alina said something where it's like in Los Angeles, one of the official stages of grief is shopping around a dead pilot. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, well, we're taking it to, you know, we're taking it to here. And then out of the blue, because the CW put up Jane the Virgin, Alina had the idea, like, why don't we send it to the CW? Because we'd only really been focusing on cable places. Because the show is, you know, we talk about periods and it, it just it just doesn't. Also, there's a hand job scene in the original pilot. We just couldn't see <laughs> a network picking it up. And um, CW was very enthusiastic, and there were talks about 
maybe picking it up for a later time during the summer. And then literally two, three days before we found out we were going to series, we got a call that we were being considered for the fall. And then a week later, I was in New York. So CW has really taken an amazing leap of faith with us putting up a show that really isn't like a show you would see on network television. Um, And they've been awesome. I'm not sure it's a show I really see on cable either. I'm always sort of unsure what to align it with when I'm trying to describe it to people. You said that the show is dark. Do you think of it still as being a dark comedy? I do. I mean, there were always a lot of elements of darkness because we're taking, I mean, even in the songs, like we're taking kind of happy tropes of songs and exploring like a darker side to them. And the thing that I think does make it, you're right, separate from like a dark cable show is there was always like a layer of optimism to it and a layer of cheeriness. But yes, I do think it is a dark show. And I think that will become more apparent because ultimately this girl is on a She's on a fool's errand. This is a show about someone who has made a bad decision and in many ways is a bubbly anti-hero. It's interesting to me how, as the show has progressed, and I guess maybe I didn't expect this, you you not only delve more and more into her past, into her childhood, her traumatic formative experiences, but it almost seems like we're on a... I almost hesitate to put it this way because it makes it sound so grim, but it's like a, it's a psychological investigation of this character. Like she's, it's like we're not just having her revealed to us, the audience, but she's kind of revealing herself to herself, even though a lot of times she doesn't seem to register the importance of what she's learning. The only thing I can say to that is totally. That's really smart. Yeah, like, I mean, that's kind of how we saw it was a character study where some of the stuff we're pointing out about her and her depression and anxiety and her and and the fact that Josh in some ways is this somewhat like Brechtian symbol of infatuation and, and what love can do you that she's subconsciously aware of it but not aware of it but the show's aware of it so yeah it's it is in many ways a psychological study. There are moments where she actually comes right out and says what her problem is, like what it is that's making her make bad decisions or or what, what what's sort of making her act in these kind of endless loops of behavior. And she actually says it out loud and then doesn't can't do anything about it. Like she, she it's like she doesn't even realize that she's diagnosed her own problem. It's very it's funny yeah. and sad at the same time. I mean, I think that's what was, when we first started thinking about the show, what was interesting to us was taking a person who was very smart, like top of their intelligence, and exploring, like, what would it take for a very smart person who's very sure of themselves to get themselves into such a pathetic, obsessive situation? Because it happens. <laughs> it happens in life. And, and Aline and I were writing about it from a very first-person perspective, where it's like, we are smart people, we're smart women, yet time and time again, us and other smart people women smart people we've known have let love turn them into like pathetic idiots (laughs) and that's what i really like exploring is the struggle between what we know we should be doing and what we do anyway and in many ways what biologically our body wants us to do Um, because (laughs) when you when you look at like you know infatuation and it's it's actually a term called limerence that was coined in the 60s. Um, Limerence is a term coined by an anthropologist to to mean like obsessive infatuation. It's, It's our body telling us we need to reproduce. And it's focusing on a guy. I mean, all romantic comedies are about the will they or won't they, right? Like there aren't many romantic comedies that are just about a happy couple because that's not interesting to watch. There's a story there. And part of the will they or won't they is this like mating dance. And every other species has like, a mating dance. It has like a thrill of the chase. And we have that too. So when we're infatuated with someone, it's not something that's located like logically in our head. Attraction is something that you can't control. And it's your body wanting you to replicate yourself. Um, and so it, it goes against intelligence and it goes against logic. And in many ways, it isn't real. And also the ways in which we are attracted to people who may be wrong for us it has nothing to do with, like, if we're compatible. It's so many other factors. Like, what are their pheromones like? Do they remind us of another person that we've loved? This reminds me of uh, something a friend of mine said, that love love and sex remind us that we're not just humans, we're mammals. Right. Exactly. It, that's so true. Like, my husband and I actually have gotten, we've been watching a lot of nature documentaries <laughs> the past week or two, <laughs> and you see, like, you know, how the males pursue the women. It's 
it's what we do, except we do it on a more sophisticated scale. But at the end of the day, like, you know, sex is awkward and weird. And it's just like people like bumping their groins up against each other. And that's what every romantic comedy and every like romance is about, where it's just like, me want put penis in you. You let me put penis in you. And like the fact that like we, we intellectualize it, especially on our show, with like musical numbers and and Rebecca, you know, writes these beautiful poems in her head. At the end of the day, it's about, like, dick and vagina make baby now. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of limerence, one of the things about limerence, though, is that it does end and there is sort of an expiration date. Do you think about that in terms of how you're framing the pas de deux between uh, Rebecca and, and Josh, that that kind of infatuation will eventually have to come back to Earth? Yes, we, we do think about it. And I think on a very important thing about limerence, is that there has to be this constant dance. Because limerence, there is an expiration date, but that kind of applies to when it's been resolved. Like if, you know, if you're in a limerence state and then you get together, that limerence is going to slowly fade away and then hopefully will turn into a more mature love. Or, you know, something will be resolved. But if you if you have this kind of like constant push and pull, you can kind of extend that mating dance, you can extend that limerence. So we we are very aware that, like, the spark in Rebecca's eyes can go out at some point. But if Josh keeps giving her something to latch onto, it's going to be harder and harder for that spark to go out. The title of the show has been the subject of a lot of, let's say, controversy. I mean, you know, not like anybody's burning things in the town square, but there have been some discussions <laughs> of whether crazy as a pejorative term, does it accurately describe the heroine? Does it play into sexist stereotypes? And you address that right up front in the opening credit sequence, but I wondered if you could talk about that a little more in relation to the characters. Yeah, this might sound naive, but the backlash really surprised Elena and me, and I think it was a couple of reasons. I think first when we thought of the show, the term crazy ex-girlfriend is such like a stereotypical term. It's such a blanket term that from the beginning, we always wanted to do a deconstruction of what that means. Because it's something that is so said, oh, my crazy ex-girlfriend, or oh, I've been such a crazy ex right now. Like, I don't know. I guess to us, we never thought people would take it at face value because the show was always such a, like, feminist intellectual deconstruction of what love is. And then I think also we were picturing it as a cable show. And I do think that if you see crazy ex-girlfriend, you know, Showtime presents Netflix or, or whatever – you're going to have a, subconsciously a different reaction knowing that it's going to be a deconstruction, whereas if you see it's on a network where you might be you know, more used to things being at face value, you might be like, oh, this is just stupid. This is like literally doing the stereotype. But the show is so never us doing the stereotype. Um, I mean, we've been working on the show for over two years. I think we, we didn't realize that people would just take it as stereotype and not automatically see like the commentary tongue-in-cheek deconstruction of it all. So I get it, but also, like, I don't know, fuck people. Like, watch the fucking show. <laughs> I wanted to ask a little bit about the sort of love triangle that's emerging. And it seemed like early on, you know, we were going to kind of have this, like, Noel-Ben situation. Uh, and it seems like that has maybe backed off a little. How much do you have planned out? How sure are you about where things are headed? And how much are you waiting to see sort of how chemistry plays out and sort of what starts to feel like the fun thing to be writing? When we pitched the show, we actually pitched the entire series, and we pitched these general arcs. And so we've had things kind of planned out for a while. I mean, obviously it changes when you plan a 10-episode cable show versus having an 18-episode first season. Things are going to change a little bit, but we've had a plan from the beginning of the ins and outs of how this love triangle is, you know, going to play out. And, and you know, I think what it's always been about at the end of the day is – Rebecca's not the only quote-unquote crazy person in town. Everybody has shit that they're dealing with. Josh has never really looked inside himself. And suddenly this girl comes to town and kind of acts as like a mirror to him and says to him, no, you're worth so much more. You're so smart. Let me help you get this job. And it causes him to look at his life and his relationship in a way that he never would have had she not moved to town. And then same with Greg. Greg is attracted to Rebecca in some ways for the same reason that Rebecca is attracted to Josh, that it's so not about Rebecca. Um, he says in the pilot, you're pretty and smart, ignoring me. So you're obviously my type. And that relates to the relationship with his mother. It relates to his own self-worth. And so we're not writing it dependent on 
fan reactions or like how the chemistry between the actors are, we very much have a plan and are willing to like say yes and if cool ideas come up in the writing room. You have a lot of characters who behave in their own way similar to Rebecca. I mean, people are running roughshod over each other, and, and the office scenes, I think, make this really, really, really vivid. Everybody just seems yeah. to be kind of in their own little mental bubble. And there are points where the show almost strangely reminds me of Seinfeld in that way. Oh, like, my gosh. I take that as, first of all, as a Jew, but also as a <laughs> television writer, I take that as a massive compliment. So I tip my hat to you, sir. Thank you. Well, they're, and just in the way that they're all completely oblivious to who they actually are. like, And they all think they're yes. the star of the show. And they all think everybody else right, right. is a, a supporting character, and they're only there to be their best friend or their foil or, or their or their love object or whatever. And it's incredibly frustrating to watch if you if what you're expecting is hugging and learning, which I guess is what Larry David said Seinfeld would never have. Yeah, I you know I think that we when we're writing the show, we want to go for what's truthful, especially because we started out writing in an area like inland Southern California that you haven't really seen on TV. You know, it's not New York City. It's not Hollywood. And so for us, the only way to go about it, also to contrast with the crazy musical numbers, the only way to go about it is to be like as truthful and like as theoretically nuanced as possible. And most people are selfish. I mean, I feel like most people don't actually listen to other people when they're talking. You, You hear these different types of personalities, but like I think people are fundamentally kind of selfish they are limited by their own experiences, and everyone is the star of their own story, as you put it. So I think that the character who might be the most similar to Rebecca on this show is not Paula, but Daryl. Uh, mm-hmm. Daryl is on a similar search for identity. He has a similar myopia. In that first scene in the pilot, it was really important to us. You notice that he's, he's not really listening to what Rebecca is saying. She's saying, I lived in New York, and instead of saying, oh, New York, how was that? He goes, oh, I was in New York for a week once. I had the great pizza. And that's just something, like, you notice with people, right, where you say, like, someone will be like, oh, I'm from South Africa. And then instead of being like, oh, my God, that's so interesting. Tell me about that. They'll be like, oh, I read a story in a magazine about South Africa. And then they'll just proceed to tell you about the story they read rather than asking you about your life living in South Africa. Like, (laughs) I think think the more enlightened you are, and we're going to be exploring this a little bit with the character of Mrs. Hernandez, actually, but the more enlightened you are, the more you feel secure enough in yourself to just listen to other people and not have to assert your own experiences because you feel insecure. Right. Do you think the show is cynical about people and their sort of state of being? Or do you think it has like the idea that we could all, we will all eventually hatch into the person we're supposed to become? I think it's mixed. I think the show takes the point of view that if you truly want to change, you can change. And that's a very mixed view because there are some people, you know, who we all know who like ultimately just they want to be unhappy. They don't want to change because change is really scary. But for the characters that actually do want to legitimately make themselves better, there, there is hope. So I think it's, we're cynical when it comes to certain characters. And then we're, I mean, like the way we just ended the mom episode, they had this like beautiful conversation where she and her mom admitted that they love each other. I know you're disappointed in me. I know I'm not the married work monster that you want me to be. But you know what? Neither are you. You are a horny, unemployed divorcee who married an Irish Catholic. I am half him, and that is why you hate me. I am half of what you hate. Hate you? I don't hate you. What? Is it what you think, Rebecca, that I hate you? I love you. I've always loved you. I love you too much. I wake up every morning sick with worry, wondering where you are, how you are. I am consumed by my love for you. And when you have a child, you will understand this. If I ever have a kid, I will only care if they're happy. Happy? What's happy? That's a term for stupid people. I want you to survive. Our people are not about happy, we're about survival. And that is why I'm glad that you stood up to me, because that means when the Cossacks come, you can fight back. You can survive. I love you. Of course I love you. I am your mother. Mommy, of course I love you too. Get over here. You get over here. <laughs> and it seems like they took a step. But then the mom says to her, You're coming home for Passover, right? And Rebecca's like about to be a big girl. Rebecca. You know what? No, I'm not coming home for Passover. And then her mom makes a potty face and she gives in. Okay, I'll come home for Passover. <sighs> Good girl. 
So humans have patterns, and it's really, really fucking hard to dig yourself out of them. And when someone digs themselves out of the pattern, it's possible, but you have to have a lot of motivation to do so. And ultimately, Rebecca and her mother and a lot of people on the show are not truly ready to dig themselves out of these patterns. And even if you dig yourself out of those patterns and change, there's always tremendous temptation to change back. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's the way that love affects your mind is very similar to drugs. And it literally is addictive. So even if you say to yourself, I'm not going to touch heroin again, or I'm not going to give in to that infatuation again, if you get like a little taste of it, it's really easy to be drawn back in, especially if you're not happy in your own life. And I think that was really important when we thought of the term like crazy ex-girlfriend. Anyone who becomes quote-unquote crazier on a hinged over an ex, depending on the degree, chances are it's not all about the person they're infatuated with. It's about the person wasn't that happy to begin with, and they're using love as an escape. And as someone who has been depressed and anxious for a lot of my life, I have definitely used love as a way to escape having to, like, live with myself and live with my own thoughts. Are there moments or ideas where, like, oh, maybe she could go this far, and it's like, nah, that's probably too out of pace with what we're doing or things that seem maybe too dark or too fucked up to to really make sense in the sort of context of the show? Or do you feel like, nope, there's no there's no sort of territory we won't cross because we think we can handle it? Is there I was yeah, I was gonna ask something similar because I wonder when you're writing a show like this, do you do you have a temptation to go in a particular direction and then you stop because you realize we could be digging ourselves into a hole that we're never gonna get out of? Yeah, we were just talking about this yesterday actually. Like everything with this show, it's it's a mix because there have been some things where it's been like, Rebecca can't say that or someone can't say that about Rebecca. And then it's like, well, let's explore like the scary thing. What if that happened? What would that mean? How do we dig ourselves out of that? But also like, how do we not dig ourselves out of that? And how does it change things fundamentally? This show at the end of the day, even though it, it's, you know, there's sitcom elements, it's a comedy, it's always written to be like a serialized show. So we do want change, and we do want the characters to change, and we don't want every episode to necessarily be a reset. And then it's also like things that would seem out of character. It's like, could Rebecca burn down (laughs) Josh's apartment to kill Valencia? Like, sure, she could, but what would that mean for the series? Like, what are we saying about her mental state? (laughs) Nothing's necessarily off-limits. It's just, it's taking so many things into account, not just, like, jumping the gun. Because sometimes jumping the gun, plot-wise, like, Breaking Bad is such a good example. So, like, when Breaking Bad came back for that final season, you knew it was going to be a standoff between him and Hank. I think everyone is expecting that, like, oh, they're going to spend, like, the first few episodes with him and Hank, like, tiptoeing around each other. And then, like, the end of episode one, it was him and Hank in that garage being like, I'm going to fucking get you. How exciting was that, that, like, they accelerated the plot, and by doing that, it's not like they burned through plot, but they opened up the doors to so many other fascinating things. So I don't think, like, tiptoeing with plot is always the right move. That hypothetical arson scenario that you just spun sounds awfully interesting, though. You can... oh, the, <laughs> I guess I'm just fantasizing of I you mean... doing Orange is the New Black with musical numbers or something. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. And oh, and when they did that Morelli uh, Plot Orange of the New Black, that I was like, oh, that's like kind of our show um, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a great way. And I don't I actually really don't care about people liking Rebecca. I really don't care because I've always seen her, as I said, like a bubbly antihero. Like the show is based upon the fact she has made a horrible decision that no one should emulate, really. I just want you to understand where she's coming from. I think that Sometimes my big beef with, like, shows trying to be, like, crazy and experimental is just, like, something will be happening, and then it's just, like, boom, cut to two characters, 69-ing. And it's, and, it, and it's not like I'm offended by the 69-ing. It's like, what in the plot and the story led to these characters 69-ing in this moment? And so if something crazy is going to happen, obviously we can't do that on our show. Otherwise, everyone will be 69-ing all the time. Uh, I'm, out of curiosity, I'm not sure which show you're referring to because I covered the biggest 69 in TV history, which was on The Americans, and it doesn't come up on oh, TV no, that much because no, it's no, not no, that I'm telegenic. That's so funny. I'm not talking about The Americans. Um, there's a couple of shows. I won't say what I'm talking about. Oh, that's, I got to catch up on the... All right, well, spoiler alert. Uh, Adventureland, they've gone too far. 
Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's why my husband loves that show. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. That tracks now. Um, it's it, it winds up being a pivotal moment, I will say. It's done tastefully. But you know, actually, this is a great example. This is great. So the original pilot of Crazy X, when it was on Showtime, instead of Rebecca and Greg making out and, and her interrogating him while they made out, she gave him a hand job. It was like a hand job interrogation scene. And when Alina and I were writing it, and Aline, Aline is great with like these, just making these surprising, bold ideas. And so we're in the middle of writing the pilot. We knew that Rebecca's at this party with Josh's best friend. And Aline goes, I don't know, what if she just like gave him a hand job? And I was like, what? Like, I remember being like, what? That comes out of nowhere. And then like we actually, we worked backwards and thought about it because that was like a really interesting idea. And you're we like, well... Hmm. It was kind of the if then what else? Where it's like, okay, well, if we want to build up to like a hand job, what would that mean? And then we were like, well, it would be an interrogation scene. That makes more sense than her. Then there's a motive to the hand job rather than just her giving a hand job to a random dude. She's <laughs> using sex as a way to get information about Josh, which is the premise of the show. So going for those bold strokes is really, really fun. <laughs> you just have to work backwards and make sure they're all like earned and there's something really cool um that comes up in episode nine which is you know our first episode after the holidays where there's something that happens where at first the writers were like we can't do that like no no we can't and then it was like well what if what if we did what does that mean and it kind of changed the rest of the season in a really cool way and after episode nine that'll be come clear what I'm talking about, but <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I think so. I really like playing with like bold leaps ahead and surprising things as long as you just like earn them. And I'm sure the 69ing on the Americans is like super earned and super grounded. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's integral to beautiful. the plot. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really uh, touching moment, so to speak. I want to go, I, <laughs> I was, well, yeah, I was, I'm still hung up on the phrase bold strokes. <laughs> bold strokes, bold right? Strokes, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wanted to go back to something we were talking about earlier, this idea of love love and infatuation as an intoxicant. That's a really interesting one because, it, it, for me, it resonates with the title of the show, like in a way that intoxicants give people permission to behave in ways that they ordinarily wouldn't. Dr- you know, drugs, alcohol, you name it. And, of course, I guess infatuation can do the same thing. And it, and it reminds me, I wish I could remember who said this, but the phrase... Uh, Love is the only socially acceptable form of, of mental illness. Absolutely. The idea that, like, love conquers all. So you're saying, like, this sexual urge that you involuntarily feel because it feels so good conquers all, but so many other things feel so good. And also, like, the separation of, like, romantic love and lust, you know, that there's, there's this purity to infatuation. There's this purity to falling in love. Oh, but sex is dirty. And it's like, no, romantic love is just like your body trying to get you to fuck. As we're talking about this, I'm really seeing how much of the show is about, like, sort of spheres of acceptability. So there are things that are acceptable in musical numbers that are not acceptable sort of in prose. And there are things that are acceptable in a romantic sphere that are not acceptable at work. And there's sort of these, like, areas where certain kinds of extremeness are normalized and areas where they're incorrect. And I wonder how much of... Rebecca's deal is not knowing where those boundaries actually lie. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also points to my own lack of boundaries <laughs> in my own life, which I've been told repeatedly. I would say that's probably a main aspect of Rebecca's personality is that I'll just talk about anything to anyone. I'll be like, what do you want to know? I'll tell you about my dump today. And it's probably not the healthiest thing to do. The musical numbers in many ways are people's conscious and it's the things that they're kind of alluding to in conversation but don't say a good example of that is the song settle for me so when greg asked rebecca out he didn't say settle for me i'm a piece of garbage he phrased it in a way that was like a little more nuanced and like socially acceptable but rebecca sees it and really when you boil it down it's Settle for me. I have no problem being picked out from the bottom. If he's your broken condom, I'm plan B. So lower those expectations and settle for me. And so the songs are kind of cutting past like the bullshit of like societal niceties and getting to the meat of what someone is really saying. 
And actually later in the episode, when Rebecca says to Greg, hey, your whole settle for me vibe, it's weird. And Greg says, and this is, I think, a, this is actually a point that Santino, the actor, made. He says, okay, I don't quite remember it that way, but no, I don't want you to settle for me. So, like, you get the sense. It's not like he said settle for me. It's just that is what he was saying in the subtext of it. There are some fan theories about what exactly the musical numbers are meant to communicate to us. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, like whether it's only in Rebecca's head or like is this sort of information that people would say otherwise and if if there's kind of like a mystery to be cracked about when and how the musical numbers arise. Is there a mystery here? Is there some like sort of subtle cue that we're supposed to be like teasing out of? Oh, well, because... No one like until Greg showed up in her musical number, we could say that it was just her like interior nuttiness. And then once it expanded to other characters having musical numbers, did that mean that like it was her projecting or that was really them and people sort of trying to figure out like the puzzle to it? Is there a puzzle to it? Yeah, there is actually. The way I see it, I think the way that we all see it is when a character has a music number that is outside of Rebecca's imagination, that she's not in the room, there's no way she could see it. The way that I see it is that it's that they've been infected with Rebecca's madness. And whatever that means, Rebecca moving to West Covina was this stone dropping in a pond that has a ripple effect. And slowly she starts to affect everyone else's lives. So Paula is kind of almost on the same page as Rebecca on the pilot, which is why she very naturally sings with her. And I very much see that as Rebecca and Paula singing together. That's not in Rebecca's head that Paula is singing. I mean, obviously no one's actually really singing in real life, but... When Greg does What'll It Be in episode six, that really is, in my mind, in his head. But because Rebecca's been in his life, he's been, I'll say, like, touched by her brand of madness. And so now he has this form of self-expression and this form of self-awareness that he didn't have before. Because that's what it really is, is because Rebecca is making these bold decisions, she causes people to look around and look at their lives in a way that they hadn't before. So slowly, characters will do their own songs as Rebecca kind of, like, touches them with music. Greg wasn't having musical numbers before she got to town. No, no, no. Greg was never... This is the first number, you know, he notices the piano. He says, huh, never noticed that before. Because Rebecca's (laughs) caused him to look at himself in a way because she's so attracted to Josh and he's so attracted to her... It has caused him to look at himself like, why am I attracted to this girl? What is my life? What am I doing? That's how I see it. But no one is ever really singing, like, in actual life. Like, the music numbers don't exist. Can we talk a little bit about musicals, about your obvious love of musicals? What What are some of the musicals that got into your mind and never left? What are some of the musicals that you think of when you're, when you're trying to come up with a musical number on this show or just working on this show? You have to understand, I only listen to musicals up until age 18. Hold on one second. My dog is going crazy outside, okay. and it's driving me bananas. Just one second. Hey, 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 Wiley, come here. Come here, Wiley. Wiley, hey, Wiley, come here. Come here, Wiley. Okay. I live in L.A. Come here. Hey, come here. Good girl. Uh, I live in L.A., and our dog drew us, and my dog was barking at squirrels, and now I'm going to give her a treat, so she'll shut the fuck up. Um, sorry about that. Slash be reinforced that if she barks at squirrels, she gets a treat. I know, right? It's hard because I want to I want to incentivize her to come inside, and so it's like I can get her to come inside with a treat. But yes, it. I wonder if it anyway. You know, your dog's I, right? the, the dog. Your dog's cycle of behavior eerily kind of sums up the behavior of characters on your show. <laughs> You're totally right. She like she never quite. <laughs> learns from her actions and she's getting a false reward that's unrelated but you're you're completely right my dog totally agrees with you right now um what was i saying wait we were talking about musicals we were going to talk about musicals oh yeah yeah yeah. musicals musicals so i only listened to musicals like until college i got really into it so there are all sorts of kind of musical genres when doing the show and i think that the the biggest challenge for me is not to make everything necessarily a musical theater genre. Because, you know, there are rock musicals, there are musicals that incorporate heavy metal. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, it's like that heavy metal musical number. And someone's like, or it's just a heavy metal song, Rachel. And I'm like, oh, right, right, right. There's music other than musical theater. <laughs> I forget that sometimes. What I have always loved playing with is taking established musical tropes and then turning them on their head 
and exploring something that rings true to life or something darker, something that really doesn't fit the genre, and playing with that juxtaposition. And I think that's partially the fact that, like, my personality is, like, growing up I was, like, a dark kid who really loved reading about murder and was just, like, very, very, like, I don't know, introspective and love poetry. But then at the same time, I love 1930s musicals. And the two didn't really, like, have anything to do with each other. And then as I got older, I I, the Candor and Ebb, who was this team, they wrote Chicago, they wrote Cabaret, a bunch of other shows. They do what I'm talking about, which is they take established musical shows from, like, the 30s, the 20s, 30s, 40s, and then they make them super dark. So, for instance, in the musical Cabaret, Cabaret takes place in the 30s, and so all of the music is very, very happy, happy, peppy 30s, but it takes on a darker spin that you wouldn't have had with those happy songs. So, like, the song Cabaret, Sally Bowles is singing Life is a Cabaret, but the subtext of it is she's convincing herself to go get an abortion. That's what that song is about. It's a, it's a woman convincing herself to get an abortion. And then even more with Chicago, which was written in the 70s, they take 20s music, but they use it as a satire of politics and the media. So you have this really peppy song called They Both Reached for the Gun, which is like a super, super happy, peppy song. But what it is, is it's a, it's a lawyer putting words in his client's mouth. So Candor and Ever are very influential. And then, and then Stephen Sondheim takes that idea and really runs with it. I mean, my favorite musical is this show, Assassin's. And I don't know if you guys know Assassin's. Oh, well, Matt and I but... are like dying right now. Yeah, <laughs> you're speaking our language. You really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was oh, actually. That's great. So We're musical nuts, yeah. both of us. Oh, that's fantastic. Right. So you guys know, like, part of what I love about Assassin's is, well, he takes the idea of American, the American dream, which in itself is kind of like a trite expression, right? The American dream. And says, like, well, killing a president is in many ways like fulfilling the American dream. It's like anyone can make a difference. Everybody's got the right to be happy. So already that's taking kind of like a happy trope and then really, really turning it on its head in like a fucked up dark way. And then every single song in that show is a very otherwise like happy, not particularly emotionally deep genre that he then turns into something fucked up. And like the best example is Charles Gateau, who assassinated President Garfield. He's covering his death sentencing where he's getting publicly hung. And he sings, like, a cakewalky song called Look on the Bright Side as he's cakewalking up the steps to be hung. So stuff like that has really informed our show of how do you take established genres and then flip them on their head. You have a lot of also musical numbers on the show where people are working through things as they sing, where, you know, a lot of musical numbers are about stating what a character believes or how they want themselves to be presented. But there's that whole subgenre of musical number, and I think Sondheim is probably the master of it, where it's almost like therapy through song, like they're grappling with their issues. And you hear these two competing aspects of them fighting with each other. And also, one way of viewing the world and another maybe darker way of viewing the world are in they're in conversation with each other, and one of them doesn't necessarily win at the end of the song, like a sorry, grateful from company. Like, are you sorry? Oh. Are you grateful? No, you're both at the same time, and you're neither, and that's that's just the reality of it. Yes. Oh, my gosh, I love that song so much. I guess um, I sort of also think about Bye Bye Birdie a lot when I'm watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because some of the songs are so peppy, and they're big, and they're fun, and they're silly, and it sort of is playing the subtext of we're all performing this kind of social happiness when the truth is, you know, it's perpetrating a fraud. Uh, And that that the the real underbelly here is like profound distaste for like a bunch of things that are happening and you have to, you know, there's a lot of like really rigid roles in Bye Bye Birdie, right? Like you have like very rigid. Bye Bye Birdie, of course, makes makes me think of Mad Men and that line from (laughs) that line from season four, uh, Dr. Faye saying there's what we want and there's what's expected of us. Yeah. Yes, and I think it depends on the musical number. And I think the challenge also is is because we're a mostly comedic show with our musical numbers, you know, comedy lives in kind of stasis in, in many ways. Like, because I see these songs as musical sketches in many ways. And in a sketch, the whole rule of sketch comedy is like, you want to live in patterns. You want to repeat the pattern. You know, what's the game of the scene? What's the premise of the scene? And when you bring in plot, when you bring in a change, that fights comedy because you're no longer exploring the pattern. So I think it's, with us, it's, all, it's always a debate of, like, what's the tone of this song? And, and the songs can very subtly, tonally shift depending on how plotted we want to get. 
how much we want to have a character realizing something in the song, how aware the character is of the song they're singing. A great example of that is in episode five, Daryl sings a song, I love my daughter, but not in a creepy way. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> the father-daughter dance surrounded by adorable girls, but there's only one that's got my eye. Her feet on my shoes, her hands on my hips. Yeah, it's a weird visual now that I think of it. I know lines like that can ski people out. But when it comes to tickling, she about to get it now. I'm very careful where I tickle my daughter. Never inappropriately. I can see how that came out of the confusion. I just love my daughter, but seriously, not in a creepy way. I love that song, and that song was mainly written by Jack Dolgen, and it's fucking brilliant. And so he's working through something. So, for example, the sketch way to do that would have much more been like, I love my daughter, but not in a creepy way. And as Daryl sings the song, his examples get creepier and creepier, and he seems like he's a child molester, right? That's one way to go with the song, where it's just, the joke of the song is like, no, no, I don't fuck my daughter. I really love fucking my daughter, right? That's like a way that you could go with the song. But that completely fights everything about the character of Daryl. So because we're dealing with characters, the comedic kind of pattern, the game of the song changes slightly in that instead of him getting creepier and creepier, he's getting more and more self-aware of yes. how what he's saying is weird. So we keep to the premise of the song but because we are dealing with real characters and characters that we, we want to be sympathetic to, that changes the comedy of a song in a great way that if I, if I were just, if we were just working on these disembodied songs and they weren't from characters, I don't think they would be as like emotionally nuanced as someone working through like, oh my God, like having a daughter is really fucking weird as opposed to like, oh my God, guys, I don't have sex with my daughter even though my daughter's really sexy, you know? There's, like, two ways you could go with that song. And I like that we went for the more nuanced way because that's what Daryl is. There's also another layer of that song that I like, which is, without making too big a deal about it, it's also about how the language that we use to describe intense love for anything is automatically going to sound sexualized because that's just the way yes. we think of love. Like, any kind of really, truly passionate expression of love for anything, even if it's something like a television show, people will say, why don't you in that show get a room? You know, or you want to marry that show. Right. I mean, like that's, and, and we joke about Keep it. it. In we, your pants. Exactly. Yeah. We joke about it, but that's where the mind goes. It's so funny you bring that up because like there is so much hyperbole involved in non-sexual things that get sexual. Like you hear people when they eat food, they're like, oh my God, this food is God come. I don't know if you guys have, have you guys used that No, not that. You friends, don't hear right? that that much. I will oh, say. Oh, okay. <laughs> not since the last elementary school bake-off. I thought you were going to say, like, mmm, this is so good. And, then, and I was like, yeah, people do say that. No. But, but you, oh, no, it just no, went no. way maybe, further than I expected. Maybe my friends are all just extremely fucked up. But I feel like at that point, that's a, that's a, like, oh, this food's like, God, come. Or, like, mmm. Like, oh, this food is like, oh, I want to make love to this food. Like, yeah, you kind of conflate. Maybe it's just me that views food sexually. I don't know. No, I think I think Philip Roth was ahead of you. People use food sexually, but I think I think the God come might be a, a, a Rachel original. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you know, the way you talk, like you, you're just constantly generating like phrases that I want to be titles of songs. Like, for example, touched by, <laughs> touched by her brand of madness. I'll tell you about my dump today, <laughs> hand job interrogation, and, and the best, which I hope will be the uh, season finale, penis and vagina make baby now. <laughs> um, that requires I'm a 40-piece orchestra. I, I am kind of writing all these down just to remember. <laughs> <laughs> penis and vagina make baby now. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have fun. That's what I, that's what I, sometimes when I'm just on set and we'll be doing a weird scene, I'll literally just turn to camera and go, we have fun on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> so I have a question more about the kind of mechanics of the show. How much do you want everyone to be rooting for, for Rebecca and Josh to get together? It changes episode by episode. I think actually the, the thing that surprised me a lot is you know, when we started the show, Josh very much was a device where it was, it was, it was always supposed to be like, it's not about love, it's that's how we're flipping a romantic comedy on its head. It's not about getting this guy. 
it has everything to do with, with what's going on in her head, and the guy almost has nothing to do with it. And then as we've been writing the show, and this is partially just, like, because of who Vincent Rodriguez, who plays Josh, is, but you do see that, like, Rebecca and Josh do balance each other out in a really nice way, that they are different people, but, like, Josh is the, like, unconditional love and unconditional optimism that she has been craving. He has a family. There's a simplicity with the way he views life and views the world that Rebecca, being so in her head and so neurotic, she needs that. And then, likewise, she's the first person, I think, ever who's ever told Josh, like, he's smart and capable of far more. I mean, we found out in episode eight he was on this dance team in school, and he was popular and very charming, but I don't think anyone ever praised his intelligence or really his self-worth, especially not, like, his girlfriend. And she gives him, kind of in some ways what he gives her, this, like, happy, overwhelming, non-analytical support. And so the more we explore them together even though you would think they wouldn't work together, it's like, oh, in many ways, like, they give each other what the other person needs, whereas Rebecca and Greg go well together, but they fight. I mean, they call each other out on their shit. Greg is the kind of over-analytical person that Rebecca was in some ways trying to get away from. So there are, there are numerous ways. I do not think this love triangle is cut and dry, and I think that's what surprised me a lot, which is every episode, I'm kind of, I kind of keep switching. I'm Team Greg. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you was, um, what's it like to create these musical numbers? What is it like to actually be in the room with people who are trying to come up with a musical number? Is there somebody sitting at a piano and people pacing around throwing out lyrics? Or does someone go off by themselves and just write something and present it to the others? Can you walk us through that a little? The musical numbers are mainly written by me, Jack, and Adam, settle for me. The way that we started writing that was I was in my car listening to a ton of songs from that era, and I just started jotting notes down into my phone. And then I went home and, like, put very rough ideas into a Word document and then started honing it from there. Jack, when he wrote, I love my daughter, but not in a creepy way, he holed himself up in his office, and we just heard him kind of playing his guitar and singing for, like, hours on end. We don't really write lyrics in the writer's room. The biggest the lyric writing room ever gets is me, Jack, Adam, and then Aline, which is which is really fun. I mean, writing lyrics, lyrics as a group is really fun because it's like the best joke wins. <laughs> so California Christmas Time was actually very much a song that we were brainstorming a bunch of people together. I'll, I'll remember we were like, we were trying to find a rhyme, like, it's 100 degrees. Da, 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 Eve, and we knew it had to like rhyme with Eve. And Adam was like, I don't know, I just had this idea, like the self is Vietnamese. And he's like, but I don't know. And I was like, Adam, that's amazing. Well, you can take your snow and shove it. This is our Christmas and we love it. It's a hundred degrees. This elf is Vietnamese. That's the way the California does it. And so that's really fun when someone has a great joke that they're like, ah, this is something I just like thought of let's see if it's anything and then they'll say it and it's like the best lyric in the world but yeah the songwriting is just so fun I mean in many ways the writing and the creating and the being in the writer's room is still the most fun part for me because it's like a blank page or canvas so many possibilities you know it's like yeah Rebecca could I don't know kill herself <laughs> why not <laughs> what if what if that happens she's not going to kill herself uh but that's why I really like the writing creative process because it's just, you're just making it all up and hopefully it's good. And I said earlier that like, we're really, really proud of these eight episodes of TV. And that's like only after like every episode comes with like rewrite after rewrite and doubting and sometimes filming stuff and being like, let's see how this works. And then fixing it and editing. And like only when we watch it on our own television sets, we're like, okay, that came out really, really well. And then we can, like, breathe this prideful sigh of relief. Is there anything coming up in the sort of next batch of episodes that you want to tease for our listeners? You know, the theme of the first season was always the lies we tell ourselves. 
that was kind of the overall, like, and it's not just Rebecca. It's the lies everyone else tells themselves. And so we're going to continue to deconstruct the lies that people tell themselves. And I guess the other thing I'll say is if it ever seems like we are leaving the love triangle of, like, the Josh and Greg, that's not necessarily the case. But Greg wins, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm like Greg super and team Josh Greg. Have a have a an ultimate battle. Do they kiss? And they fight. Well, actually, Greg would be. Oh my God, I wish. Anything you're possible. writing it. Someone, Make them kiss. <laughs> someone, I mean, someone tweeted at me. Forget Josh. Rebecca should just have a threesome with Josh's hot friends. And any other show, that would be like, no. And I was like, you know what? That could happen. I don't. You know, that's like something that. Never say God, never. It probably, yeah. it probably it probably won't. But everything, you know, is going to end up being so kind of snaky tail on this show. But the more that things can kind of dovetail together, the better. Oh, my gosh. I think- <laughs> I'm so proud of the show. And it's, it's always a line of, like, how do I express my pride in the show without being, like, laggy and an asshole? But I'm really proud of what we created. And it's a show that I watch. It's a show that I want to watch. And all I can hope it's that is that it's a show that other people also want to watch. And and I think that that's happening. So I guess I just, you know, want to say, like, I'm really proud of my baby. And if you haven't checked out my baby, check out my baby. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank this you. was terrific. Oh, thank you. That's it for this special episode of the Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions@vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. We're going to be doing a listener grab bag episode to finish out the year, so now is a great time to send us your questions, concerns, ideas, and maybe your pick for favorite show of the year. That number again, 646-504-7673. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Sarah Abdurrahman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends. If you hate the show, tell two enemies. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening.